Hello and welcome to the Constructor Cast, your AGC place for all the news, views, and interviews relevant to your construction business. I'm your host, Amy Hager. On today's episode, we're looking at a few of the presentations from the AGC 100th Annual Convention. And this is just a quick highlight of a few sessions that we hope you'll gain some tips to take back to your business if you attended the conference or if you didn't. First, we're going to talk about perception surveys. And to start off, I'd like our presenters to introduce themselves. Mike, why don't we start with you? Thank you. Mike Haller, Gallegos Corporation, based out of Vail, Colorado. We're a masonry company. And I am Nikki Washam. I work for IMA Incorporated here in Denver. We are an insurance broker, and I work primarily with construction clients and help them by looking at risk at their organization and ways to make their workplace safer. And so the presentation that you guys did at the convention was about perception surveys. And I think the three key takeaways that I gained from the session was if you're going to do them, you hopefully will get candid responses because you've opened the lines of communications within your company. And the big takeaway that I think is great about these is the employees feel valued. So Nikki, why is it important for companies to be doing these surveys? Safety perception surveys, uh, they are based on looking at your culture within a company. So culture is something that's really important. We want all of our employees to be displaying how we truly feel about safety in the workplace. And if they're not doing that, we begin to be looked at as a company that is not safe Mm -hmm. and employees leave or we start to see accidents occurring. So perception surveys can help you to find that focus for your organization and that's a really important place to start with within each company. That makes sense. And so Mike, you've actually conducted one of these surveys. So can you kind of walk me through how your company did this and everything along those lines? It was fearful. (laughs) <laughs> when I was approached to do the, the survey, Nikki approached me and she had to convince and um, I, I, I accepted the challenge. Um, then I had to go to our ownership group and management support team um, and sell it to them. And I was fortunate. I didn't have a lot of uh, kickback on, on, on doing the survey. So I had a lot of support with that same group um, to help orchestrate and administer the the survey itself. So I I was lucky and fortunate that way. Yeah, definitely. So who all had to be involved in the actual process? We got information in the the survey from IMA Insurance. So we had off off a shelf um, survey questions. Um, We did change some of the questions to so our employees um, would understand them a little better. We used our own terminology and some of our lingo. Okay. So we made a few changes that way. And then um, we gave ample notice to the employees on, on why we're doing this. So we had two or three weeks of notice that we're going to come out to your job, um, conducting this with our HR department, kind of as a neutral administrator, mm-hmm. not using a, the safety department or the project managers who maybe are too much authority and where the employees might feel intimidated. So we used our HR department um, and it, they went out to each job. Uh, it was probably about a two week process okay. getting to 250 employees. So that that was probably the most time consuming part of it. Mm-hmm. 
Um, IMA then did all of the data management okay. for us. So the first part, it wasn't too bad. Nice. So then you did this back in January of 2017. So once you got all of your results back, what did you do with them? You didn't just sit them on a shelf, did you? You can't do that. No. <laughs> okay. No. Um, we did... Um, we met with the ownership group, project managers, and we did a train-the-trainer program where then they and the safety committee went out and shared the results with the employee on each job site. So we had three states that we went out, and every um, and one day we did it all, and we covered 95% of all employees received the results. And then we um, had reviewed it in our Gallegos Gazette, a quarterly newsletter oh, cool. and sent um, mail notifications to each employee. So it was important for us that the family members knew that we did the survey yeah. and um, had the results in hand that way, and both in English and Spanish. We have a high Spanish um, population workforce. That makes a lot of sense. Nikki, is there anything else that you can add from your other client experience as well to make sure that if you are doing perception surveys at your company, to make sure they're successful. Yeah, um, well Mike mentioned communication and that whole process, if you get out and communicate to the employees, that's probably the most important thing that's gonna help your um, your perception survey be successful. Mm -hmm. They need to understand why you're doing this and why it's important for them, not just for the company. So if you make that really clear to your employees, then they're gonna get a better response rate. So then what is the one quick tip that you want a listener to take away about perception surveys? Uh, the tip that I would give for perception surveys is to make sure that you understand where your company culture is today and where you are wanting it to go to. So when you get your results from the perception survey, you can take your company in the direction you are hoping to see it go. So Mike, how about you, since you've done a perception survey at your company, really from that experience, what's your quick tip for today's listeners? Don't worry how much it's going to cost. Don't be fearful of doing it. Get what you are going to get with that is baseline facts from the boots on the ground. You're going to get truthful facts that's going to give you direction, whether they're great or whether they're low-scored um, answers it's going to give you a direction of how to develop a baseline and an action plan to correct uh, and improve your safety culture within your company. Wonderful. Well, hopefully our listeners understand perception surveys a little bit better. And I want to thank you both for taking time with me today to be on the Constructor Cast. So our next topic, advancing HUD protection for the construction industry, didn't seem like it'd be all that cutting edge of a topic. They're just hard hats, right? But according to NIOSH, one out of every four construction fatalities is due to a traumatic brain injury. And Jason and Seth will dive a little more deeper into this, but first, why don't you introduce yourselves? Hello, my name is Jason Timmerman. I'm the EHS Director for Skanska USA. My name is Seth Randall. I'm a Division Safety Director for Clark Construction, Bethesda, Maryland. So hard hats are old, um, and you talk about the history of a hard hat in your presentation. So if hard hats are out, what should people be using? Well, you got to think, uh, 2019 is the 100-year anniversary of, of the hard hat. Uh, the initial hard hat came out in 1919. The, the major uh, hard hat that we use today was, was, came out in 1963. 
and it really hasn't been a whole lot of changes between now and 1963. So we have moved or we're trying to move the industry in the direction of using more of a helmet rather than a hard hat. The new helmets came out about two or three years ago and, and hit the industry in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, these helmets are not only offer the protection to the top of the head, but offer protection to the front, sides, and rear of the head. So if there's a slip, trip, or fall from the same level, a fall from a ladder, a fall from any height, you're going to be protected rather hmm. than something just striking the crown of your head. That makes sense. So when you say helmet, are you talking like motorcycle helmet? No, it's more like a climbing helmet. Okay. okay. It's not nearly as robust as a motorcycle helmet or a football helmet. It's more like a biking slash uh, climbing helmet that we're using. So that makes sense. So helmets instead of hard hats. So talk a little bit more about falling objects and falling people. Yeah, Amy, you're, you're right on. Um, you know, the, the standard that we, you know, kind of abide by the ANSI standard right now, the Z89, you know, again, just identifies the hazards of falling objects. You know, one thing that we at Clark and then, you know, Jason at Skanska, we both have seen that, you know, and then again, the study that you had referenced about NIOSH, you know, um, it's more about falling, uh, falling employees versus falling objects. Um, now, this doesn't take away the fact that we will always protect our employees from eliminating hazards, from engineering hazards, from administrative to PPE. Um, we just want to make sure that if all, when all else fails, we're failing safely. And providing a helmet for an employee during a fall, if it's from as Jason said, same level or falling for a lower level, uh, we want to make sure that they're protected versus just the, the top of the head. That makes sense. So what's a quick tip for listeners? If they're going to take one quick thing away, what is it? Uh, one thing I would like to say is just create enthusiasm amongst the industry. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we need we need everybody to be on board. You know, I mean, you know, a lot of things have changed and innovated over the years when it comes to safety. Uh, the one thing that we have found is the stagnant, you know, when it comes to head protection. Uh, so one thing I would uh, take away is, you know, take the time yourself to look into it and create enthusiasm that we want to make sure we go in a different direction from just hard hats to helmets. And if I had one tip to take away, one takeaway from this is that there are different products out there. Okay, these products mm -hmm. offer a lot more protection. You know, they may look a little different. But at the end of the day, it's going to offer that much more protection for every employee who wears this type of product. Well, that makes sense. Thank you so much, Jason and Seth. Now let's talk tariffs, taxes, and trade wars using material price escalation clauses to mitigate risk in an uncertain political climate with a wonderful panel. Let's start with you, Jack, introducing yourself. I'm Jack Muma, Construction Contract Administrator at Michigan State University. I'm Bob Majeris. I'm Vice President and General Counsel of Hensel Phelps Construction Company. And I'm Ron Ciotti, uh, partner at uh, Hinkley Allen in Boston. And so as a result of the recent economic conditions and trade policies, there's been a significant impact on the cost of certain goods. So Ron, can you explain the issue a little more to us? Sure. I think material price escalation is something that's mistaken uh, because a lot of people look at it and say, well, we, we assume prices are going to rise in materials and goods. It's really what we're talking about is sudden and unanticipated price escalation um, of a specific material or good in a specific time period in a specific economy. And it can be caused by a number of different things relating to regulations, taxes, tariffs, trade wars. Um, even natural disasters can bring on a sudden price escalation of a specific good. 
And so what we're really talking about is how to mitigate that price because we all understand that in a typical stipulated uh, uh, price contract, a contractor can get hit with a significant increase um, after giving their, their hard bid and now be stuck with a price uh, escalation that can truly put them in a, uh, an economic crisis. So then, Bob, since we're kind of talking about clauses and issues, what are the three types of clauses people should be looking for? Well, um, first of all, as a general contractor on a project, we, we always manage risk. That's what we do. That's right. the biggest thing that we do. Um, and there's really three things that we can do with risk in its simplest form. We can either assign the risk or uh, give it to another party. Uh, we can mitigate the risk through insurance or contingencies or contract clauses. Uh, or the third thing is that we can eat the risk and we can accept the risk and just absorb it. It's really the three fundamental ways we treat risk. Um, the, the difficulty with this risk is it's unpredictable and mm -hmm. it's not something that we see and we can predict. Um, therefore, you know, at the bid phase, if you know about price escalation, you can address it at the bid phase. Right. Uh, but when you don't know about it, you really need to deal with it at the contract phase. And um, you can deal with it through your subcontractors and through your prime contracts with the owners. Uh, with subcontractors, you can uh, try to negotiate clauses in there that uh, address their labor escalation and their material price escalation and basically assign the risk down to the subcontractor. Um, or you can deal with it, or in conjunction, you can deal with it in the, uh, in the prime contract. And there's really three types of contract clauses in the prime contract that you should consider to mitigate this type of a risk. And the first one is we call a day one escalation clause, which basically says, here's my price, and if, you, uh, uh, if the price goes up, and um, the, I'm going to pass it on to the owner as a change order or a request for equitable adjustment, and the owner is going to pay me for it. Okay. Um, it it's very effective. It's, uh, if, if you can get it into your contract, it's just less and less likely that you're going to be successful getting that into your contract. A threshold escalation clause, kind of a hybrid clause, is where you have uh, a certain threshold. So if the price increases above a certain threshold, then you can go to the owner for a, a change order request for equitable adjustment. If it's below the threshold, mm -hmm. then the contractors are going to absorb it. Okay. Um, and the third way to look at it really is a delay escalation clause. And this deals with a situation where I, as a general contractor, will absorb or accept the risk um, through some mechanism I've already put in place of price escalation uh, unless that price escalation is due to a delay. So if there is a delay to the project and the substantial completion delay date is delayed and it is not due to my fault, um, then if I have to pay more for material or labor as a result of that delay, then I'm entitled to a change order or a, um, uh, or a request for equitable adjustment. Um, beyond that, uh, you know, there's a multitude of other types of, of clauses that you can negotiate into a contract as long as you have that open discussion with the owner and, and are in agreement with the owner as to what those clauses should be. That makes sense. And Jack, what do you want to add to that? Well, Bob hit the important piece at the end. It's got to be a conversation. These are legal issues, but they're also business issues. Mm -hmm. And for an owner, they need to understand why this makes sense for them. And it's not just that they're eating a risk somebody else should have. It's important that owners understand that there's an advantage to them to do this. Right. If we were to just put all the risk on the, on the contractor, there's a premium for that, mm -hmm. and we're going to pay at the end of the day for that. That makes sense. Yeah. And, but, it, again, it, it's about 
people, and it's about understanding where it comes from, the owner has a lot of different folks involved, and it could go a lot of different ways in making sure they're in a position to defend this and show why it's advantageous to them. Okay. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So if you guys had to give one quick tip to our listeners today, what would it be? Jack, go first. So there are some good tools out there. AGC's done some nice things, and Consensus Stock 200.1 is a good resource. But also, hope is not a strategy. This is not something where we can just wish we won't have the problem on this, because eventually it'll bite us all. Right. That makes sense. Bob, how about you? Uh, Well, you know, I kind of play two different roles. I provide legal advice, and I represent my client, but I also, as vice president of the company, help run the business. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, and having seen both of those roles over these, these many years of doing this, um, you know, I've come to one pretty fundamental conclusion. Uh, communication solves a lot of problems. It doesn't solve every problem, but it solves a lot of problems. So this is not a, a, an issue that, that benefits anyone. It right. doesn't help the project or the owner or the contractors or anyone, but it's an issue we have to deal with. Um, and so surface it, talk about it, communicate about it, and you know, more often than not, you're going to come to a resolution that everyone can live with and, it, and the project can get built. That makes sense. Ron, how about you? I think it's the type of communication and the way you communicate it. As a private attorney um, representing clients like both Bob and, and Jack, um, you need to be able to communicate it in a way that both parties understand um, why it's important for these clauses or processes to be set in place uh, so that it isn't just somebody looking at it saying, why would I take on your, your risk? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's a, a way to make sure they understand. Um, so I guess to put it in short terms, it's important that all parties be educated on the need uh, for these types of processes and clauses. Our last highlighted session is the results from the AGC FMI survey on the risk environment. And so we've got one of the presenters from that session. So Joe, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, hi Amy, thanks for having me. Uh, Joe Chizenko from Construction Risk Partners. Okay, and so Joe's gonna give us some practical advice on three things that were touched on the survey, in-house design, the labor shortage, and the economic turndown. Great. So. You know, first and foremost, I just I want to commend AGC and FMI for continuing to perform this study. Uh, I, I think it's really informative for the industry and helps people in my world stay focused on, on the issues that are most relevant right. to contractors. Um, so I'd like to applaud that. And, you know, so as part of the presentation today, we, we focused on, you know, the areas where, you know, the, the survey um, highlighted, you know, some of the, the more telling trends, if you will. Right. The place we started was around, you know, a perpetuation of contractors taking on more in-house design risk. And, you know, kind of to summarize the conversation there, we're just, we're seeing more projects move to kind of a design-build approach versus mm-hmm. a design-bid-build approach. And I think, you know, the kind of the, the summary of what was discussed was that whether you're in the design business or not, you're in the design business. Right. Risk uh, from, from design is, is, is certainly growing. Um, there's concern about the quality of drawings, the speed of drawings, the pace of play for projects, and, and the implications associated with that. So I think the practical guidance, you know, that was given – was that first and foremost, there's an awareness challenge that that Mm -hmm. contractors have 
Uh, certainly the more sophisticated contractors who are doing a lot of design build or P3 or IPD type projects uh, have invested a lot of time and effort in this. But you know, really all contractors should be more well-versed in, in what sort of design risk they have and how professional liability insurances function. That makes a lot of sense. So the second topic that we, we talked about um, you know, was around the availability of quality labor. Mm-hmm. I, I think kind of the summary of that conversation was this is not a new issue. Right. Uh, it's one that has you know, seemingly reoccurs every time the construction economy is good. Um, I think there's some additional growing concern just because of some generational migration and, you know, concerns about where the workforce of the future is going to come from and how technology and adaptability can play into how contractors manage their ability to to deliver on their promises. Mm -hmm. You know, I think the the one piece of practical advice that I, I would just give folks, and it kind of fits in well with concern around economic recession, you know, first and foremost, if we have a labor shortage, economic recession may or may not be the worst thing for the construction industry. An ability to kind of get itself organized and maybe catch up a little bit is not so terrible. But the other, the other guidance is, is really around continuing to invest in training uh, and, and making sure that we're not just developing a workforce, but we're develop, developing a skilled workforce. That makes uh, sense. Yeah. So, uh, we, you know, I think we, we spent some time on that. There was also some conversation around kind of how the sureties and how the and how the you know uh, property and casualty insurance underwriters, uh, you know, look at things around this, and I think there is cause for concern here. There's views that uh, a lot of subcontractors have overextended themselves, from uh, a surety and subcontractor default insurance perspective. Um, there's some real risk that people may not be fully aware of, mm-hmm. just candidly because subs are stretched thin and, and they're having these same issues. And there's concern around whether or not, um, you know, they have the wherewithal to ultimately deliver on promises. Right. And who ultimately ends up footing the bill, that's a pretty significant risk. Right. That makes sense. Um, the third topic was, was around a potential impending recession. And I think the, the big theme there was around making sure that companies are built to be resilient. Both Ryan and Al in the session talked about, you know, really stress testing the business. Mm-hmm. Um, Ryan talked about an exercise that FMI uses called, you know, how do we kill the company? And really making sure the executives understand kind of, you know, where the where the pain points are in the business and what could really hurt the business. You know, right. Al, Al suggested more of a, hey, what happens if you lost 30% of your revenue how would you manage the business through that? What would happen to your profit margins? You know, and I, I think, you know, some of the themes and guidance there was, you know, being proactive, being thoughtful around it, um, and also just encouraging companies to think about how diversified they are. Yep, exactly. Uh, you know, economic downturn doesn't typically happen uniformly, but if you're a, if you're a contractor and you're in one market, that market may be hit better or worse. It's a bit of roulette. Yeah. Um, you know, our guidance to the extent possible would be to, to, to think about how you diversify yourself. It just it decreases the chance that that one sector that you're in uh, is going to be really crushed and ultimately crush your business. Well, thanks, Joe, for sharing some of the practical advice from the survey of the risk environment. And I want to thank you all for listening. This has been the AGC Constructor Cast.